hello and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 109. Uh, sorry, this episode's been a bit late coming out. Uh, managed to go see my first um, show of like an American band on tour a couple of weeks back, and me and seemingly everyone at the venue, including the bands, got COVID. So, um, been a bit out of sorts recently, uh, and so this episode may be a little all over the place. Do bear with me. Not going to pretend there's much of a theme to this one. It's just a collection of albums I've been enjoying recently that I've not covered on the podcast before. Now we're coming like <laughs> like into the hundreds. It is a little more difficult for me to pick out albums I, I haven't covered on the podcast. So I'm pretty certain the older ones in this I've never talked about before. But apologies if I do find myself uh, sort of repeating myself here. Uh, bear with me. They're all great albums, so hopefully the coverage is still enjoyable. So the first album I want to cover is possibly my favourite metal instrumental album. This is Blotted Science with their debut and so far only album, The Machinations of Dementia. So this one I think is mostly known by death metal fans really because it's a real showcase of legendary bass player Alex Webster's talent. He's a guy who often gets the reputation as being like the greatest bass player in death metal. And I've heard him say in interviews this is, he reckons this is because he has a lot of control of Cannibal Corpse's mix, and this results in him often being very loud on their albums, even kind of the earlier material. But there is no debating Alex Webster, an incredibly talented musician. The Machinations of Dementia shows that to an extreme extent. The lineup is completed by Ron Josenbeck of uh, Watchtower fame, but also um, sort of, I think his, his band Spasdig Inc. are quite well known as well. And then the final member is on drums, we have Charlie uh, Zeleny of Behold the Octopus. Watchtower, I really like, particularly the Control and Resistance album Ron's on. Behold the Octopus are definitely one of those technical bands I've never quite cracked. Like, So I think Charlie played with them for their early releases of all their kind of EPs and stuff and maybe the first album. But yeah, I, I love a lot of Colin Marston stuff. That one feels like some very out there, like uh, the I think what Big Will from uh, Heavy Hole Podcast referred to as music school metal. It's that very, very, very clever but, like, hard to grasp if, like me, you don't really know the, like, yeah, technical intricacies that are being, uh, you know, explored with it. Blood of Science are almost the polar opposite end of that technical instrumental music. Like, the music, as I say, is incredibly technical and over the top. But they seem to never lose the idea of keeping the songs very, sort of, riffy, catchy and even atmospheric in, in odd places. The, the album starts on an incredible note. Uh, the six-minute opener, Synaptic Plasticity, is this... Inc oh, plasticity, sorry. There's a lot of medical words in the uh, song titles. I'm going to get them all wrong, I'm certain. Um, but yeah, but that opening track has so many excellent riffs in there. Um, and what what is just, like, bowls you over immediately is the hugeness of Alex Webster's bass tone. He has this incredible sort of position in the mix where it's just, like, it is the main thing you're noticing, despite the layers of Ron's, like, incredible, like, shredding guitar work. And his bass has so much attack, which is always amazing me, because I always have in my head, like, fingerstyle bass playing is much smoother, and you play with a pick to get that heavier, more aggressive sound, but... Alex Webster's a fingerstyle guy, but he seems he must just be hitting the strings with such power to create this really kind of yeah hefty sound. I I, I just love how his bass sounds in this. It's one of my like, well, um, 
I'm saying favorite base stone's ridiculous, but it's a base stone I really love and sort of regularly come back to. And the song just has mo like loads of great riffs and loads of fun, clever moments. But they're this sort of clever stuff where you you don't need to understand what was musically happening to get why it was a cool thing to do. Like the the end minute of the song has this sort of free riff repeat. Um, section, but each time it repeats, it's it's sped up a certain amount. So it starts off sounding kind of cool and like just kind of heavy, and by the end, it's this ultra shred thing where both the bass and guitar are doing something utterly ridiculous. The drum performance is also spectacular, but I feel um, he's he is somewhat overshadowed by the the two amazing musicians dueling over the top of them. Ron's playing is just wildly complex there is so many utterly ridiculous bits of lead guitar and the rhythm guitar is all over the place like this music goes through you know it's got all the sort of time signature change polyrhythm weirdness happening we would expect of particularly musicians from uh behold the octopus and uh and spastic and play it's, it's totally got that level of of complexity but as i say it just keeps coming back to moments of utter brilliance. Stuff like the minute thirty song "Oscillation Cycles," it's just that it's just a collection of brilliant riffs. We have proper like brutal head banging moment included in it. Like that's the other thing about this. It feels like a death metal album, like more so than a progressive technical instrumental album. At its core, I would argue that Machinations of Dementia is is a death metal album first and foremost, and then they've taken it to do these sort of incredible, strange things with it. There's um, there's a lot of cool effects thrown in here. I think a lot of this stuff was probably never designed to be played live. I think they, they sort of... I don't think uh, Blossy Science ever played live. I will check that in a moment, though. But there's, there's, um, there's moments... I think it's in um, the the track uh, Brain Fingerprinting. There's a bit where a solo is just gradually pitched upwards and upwards and upwards until it like disappears off the kind of hearing range high pitch. And there's like a lot of strange effects going on. Particularly there's a lot of short almost like interlude tracks like REM or um Amnesia, um, I think there's one called like Insomnia, or something like that, which, um, oh, sleep deprivation, that's what, that's what I mean, which are these kind of more atmospheric, kind of haunting, weird, they, they, they create that kind of like dreamlike thing we we're sort of talking about with tracks like Sleep Deprivation, followed by the, the Insomnia, there is, there is something, they, they do actually kind of feel reminiscent of the, the content there they're sort of referencing. Also, great fun thing at the end, um, Adenosine Breakdown and Adenosine Build-Up are two tracks, which I, I'm i not certain, but I'm pretty sure, are just the the same song, but completely reversed. So there's this three-minute instrumental track, and then as that peaks, the song note for note is played the other way around. It's not like the tape's been flip like the band have to have this out two ways and so the song does like the same thing front to back um i played it to friends and they, they did point out um my friend lewis uh, brought up you could tell which way it was written like you could tell which one is the the sort of silly reversal but it's a really fun thing you can do with an instrumental album and I, I, that's where i feel blotted science like have their real strengths like they are playing as i say like uh, what i 
deem a death metal album, but they are throwing in these kind of very strange ideas that could only make sense on something where you're not having to deal with structuring lyrics and vocal passages around this. And it can't, like, you know, you can't get around the fact that the musicianship is utterly ridiculous. I, I've heard Alex say in um, interviews that this is some of, like, the hardest music he's ever played on it, stuff that he really had to work to get good enough to play. And if he was to sort of play it again live, um, he would have to really train himself to be able to do that. Yes, yeah, so I don't think they ever played live, but you, there is a YouTube one, like, rehearsal video of the three of them playing Laser Lobotomy together. It's kind of horrible kind of quality, though. There's, as I say, this album's from 2007, so it's a, a fairly sort of older period of time for recording technology in terms of capturing that kind of stuff. So the band, this is their only album, but they did release a follow-up, um, the animation of... Entomology, and it's one I, I remember when it came out in 2011. It's a year I've spoken about before of like getting really frustrated with a lot of stuff. And I remember having a really negative reaction to this. Despite it's another 20, like, so we've got an hour long album, this is like a 25 minute follow up, and it does everything the album does just as well, except there's one slight change to this of the way this one is mixed. Um, there is way more rhythm guitar. So you don't have that kind of core of Alex Webster's huge bass sound being the primary kind of riff thing. That it, it It's instead Ron's guitar sort of doubled up as the rhythm like you would get in, in a kind of standard death metal lineup with the two guitars. Whereas with a lot of the first album, it's very much you'll have one rhythm guitar, a lead track and a bass track. And that gives the bass a huge amount of space. This to me sounds like, and I could be totally wrong about this, but something is burying the bass a bit more. I think it's two rhythm guitar tracks sort of panned either way, so the bass isn't quite getting as much space, and then you've got the lead guitar on top. Also, slight lineup change. Unsurprisingly, a new drummer has come in, um, and it's Hannes Grossman, because this is a really technical sort of death metal album. Of course, get Hannes Grossman uh, on board. Yeah, I, I think Charlie is like more or less dropped out of music now. I don't uh, couldn't see a lot more from him after sort of this period in time. Which is a shame because he is brilliant. But yeah, Hannes Grossman, obviously incredible performance. It's 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 an everything I've said about the previous album stands to this one. It's just the bass doesn't sound quite as good. So I find myself listening to this a lot less frequently. Essentially, I only ever listen to this album, putting it on directly after the original if I want some more of that. Which is yeah. Possibly a, <laughs> a a disservice to the quality of this. Although, I've I got to bring this up because this is something that happened in 2011 and because I am this petty, it still annoys me. This was roughly the point I decided I was going to stop buying metal magazines because I got an issue of Terrorizer uh, when this album came out and it's the same month um, Esoteric put out Paragon of Dissonance, which I, an album I've talked about before I really like. And I found reviews of both of them. This one had a review that slagged it off because it didn't have any sing-along moments, so it can't be as good as a normal album. And Paragon of Dissonance, I think, had a review just complaining it was too long. Like, a, a double-disc Funeral Doom album being being just too long. It's, it's, it's the problem with anything like this where you get reviewers in who just have to cover... Like, they're a guy who likes metal, they just have to cover all the genres. Kind of misses that thing of, like, metal is quite a um, 
broad canvas. So the people who really like power metal aren't necessarily going to be into like the dissonant end of grindcore or something like that. Like, and I think the like issue I noticed at least with Terrorize at that point in time was getting journalists to review stuff that just was so outside their wheelhouse, but then having to construct a review like that. I guess, more or less, the problem is, actually, I just want a bit more context. Like, surely if I'd heard, like, the guys reviewing those on a podcast, uh, where they go like, oh, yeah, I didn't really get on with this, but, like, yeah, technical instrumental music's just not my thing, I could fully accept that. But in a little review, snippet review form, I was like, how dare you have insulted this band I love. Anyway, <laughs> stupid tangent. I don't know, there's a huge amount more to say on Blotted Science. They're just a good answer to the question. If you ever have that friend who's like, oh, I could possibly like death metal if it wasn't for the vocals, give them this and see if it's actually true. some of their older stuff because I've always really enjoyed them and I think uh, quite a few listeners get on well with these guys. This is um, Septic Flesh and I've spoken before about like some of the cool transition that happened between Sumerian Demons and Communion where they suddenly sort of went all orchestral. So I thought I'd go back and do a bit of a run through sort of their their older material, sort of their early days up to sort of the point before Sumerian Demons. So I think the band's more or less always been the two Antonio brothers, uh, Spiros and Christos, uh, bass and vocals, and then guitar and sort of later on orchestration, and then uh, guitarist and clean vocalist uh, Satoris Venas, um, sort of the kind of core three. And they've worked with different drummers early on. There's a guy called Jim who's credited on the early demos, and then the first couple of albums of programmed drums and they get session musicians, and sort of, yeah, the drummer's kind of the revolving sort of member of the band, but the those core three have more or less been um, been with the band the whole way through. So I've been able to go back through a lot of the stuff because there's, like, a cool re-release of their earliest demo, Forgotten Path, now, so you can hear that in sort of all its glory. And Forgotten Path is one of those releases where essentially it's a for-fans-only thing to go back and sort of 
see the early beginnings of the band. It's very much a just straightforward death metal release. There is none of their sort of melodic flair in it. The the only thing that's really sort of interesting with it, and I can't, I, I don't know why this change sort of came about, is Spiritus' bass playing on it is like amazing. It's really like really cool, really cuts through the mix to like the extreme of like he actually um has like even has like a bass solo on one of the tracks. It's very like really driven by that and it's kind of the coolest element of um of that sound because he, he's a finger style player as well so it feels like a kind of slightly more jazzy touch to the to the sort of music. But if you've ever seen um Septic Flesh live, like a major criticism I have of the live shows the guy barely bothers playing bass while focusing on his vocals. And, I mean, he's the sole vocalist on this release. Also, it's interesting to hear just kind of how fully formed his scream was right from the start. The guy's just always been very gifted at doing that kind of nicely enunciated low and being able to throw in a few cool highs. I think I think they're there as early as, as that release. But, yeah, I'd say it's still the band finding their feet. Things start to get interesting at their first EP, Temple of the Lost Race. We start to get some of the the touches of the epic sort of uh, melodicism coming in. And, and the lyrics are kind of, I don't know, sort of moving into the, the realm of the more mythical, like, um, Septic Flesh of later on do have a very good way of... Like, the lyrics aren't ever particularly brilliant, but they're always very evocative. Like, I, I always catch snippets and, you know... It makes me want to go look stuff up a lot of the time. I don't know that they, they ever tell massive stories or much of it, but um, yeah, they, they have a very epic uh, approach to lyric writing, and and Temple of the Lost Race is starting to sort of sort of hit that point. Then we get to uh, Mystic Places of Dawn, which I think is is a real high point on in their discography. It's this. Um, it, it's still very much a a death metal maybe maybe like death doom album but they they start stepping away from a lot of the traditional trappings of death metal and starting to include slightly more epic over the top moments um both guitarists uh Satoris and Christos are credited with keyboards as well and there's there's plenty of moments of keys layered in there and we we have the kind of um real over-the-top thing as well of like the, the final track is is quite a noticeable departure from the genre that track in particular really leans into a lot of like neoclassical elements i mean it's almost exclusively keyboards but what's changing their sound and this is almost as stable as sound even to now if you you ignore the sort of the orchestra as being sort of the thing they're known for is um this inclusion for every track of loads of beautiful lead passages. Simple, very, very kind of easy to play. Like the subject flesh of the music never sounds particularly complex or that they're like massively challenging themselves as um in terms of their technicality. But they're very good composers. Like the the album is full of memorable moments. Like every riff seems very well thought out and they they do a lot to sort of break up the heavier parts. We like the bits where the drums go a bit more blasty, and we get more of a traditional heavy death metal riff. They'll make sure to intersperse those between these kind of epic, almost melodic doom moments. And yeah, there's just so much great stuff like this, and then the little laying of keyboards as well really adds to that sort of 
wonderful melodic edge. What's funny going back to this now I'm used to the latest stuff is there is a lot of these sort of trappings of death metal still there. Like there is a lot of kind of more overt, like shreddy, just like here's a kind of brutal moment bits of lead guitar, which is something the band never really do after that point. Like Septic Flesh don't really have solos. They have melodic like they have these melodies that run throughout their songs but um never so much that like and i do like how there's always this this decent counterpoint in their music of like you don't have all the guitars following the same pattern it is often like melodies layered over things and often like multiple different melodies layered up there spirus's voice sounds great on this he's like slightly affected it and it's just got a real um real weight and I, i'm gonna keep using the word epic but yeah his screams sound really epic on this and the the boris for halo um painting really uh sets off the sets the whole thing off with this like really over the top scene of like like sort of almost like demonic love scene over this like brutal like harsh yellow background i really don't like that they've changed all I think it may be all four of the early album covers they've replaced with that new style of like affected photo the band go for. I really liked all their early covers as as kind of like messy as they are. But I, I guess essentially this is clearly a an image they just took. Um, they, I don't imagine there was much uh, discussion with the original artist. So I, I, I guess I can understand the urge to change it. It's just when you like a cover of an album, it's always weird to see it represented differently so yeah if you've never checked out early septic flesh this is the album i'd say to go for it's very very different from what they would go on to do but it's really interesting the one thing i'd kind of hold against it is that final track as i say that that very melodic keyboard piece i don't think it really does anything most listens through this album i won't bother playing this like sort of nine minute ending but the point is, you still got forty great minutes before it gets to that point, so it, it hardly, hardly detracts. Then we get into very interesting territory with Esptron, um, or 
Esoptron. Uh, yeah, let's go with that, Esoptron. Uh, the next album. It's almost written as a two-piece, so for personal reasons, Crystal steps away from the band from this album, and they. this is a very odd album. It's extremely sort of experimental. There's lots of like interludes thrown in there. We get the first hints of them moving towards the neoclassical sound. Also, so this album and the one before both have programmed drums, but they are so much more obviously programmed on this and actually sort of take quite a back seat to a lot of what's going on. Whereas, let's say on the previous album, you've got like a lot of sections of blasting, clear, heavier death metal. Drums very slow on this album for the most part. So this is the first we see of a lot of elements that will sort of make up Septic Flesh's sound in the future. There's a load more sort of keyboards involved. They they sort of go throughout and um, uh, Sorotis throws in a lot of his clean vocals. If I'm remembering rightly, I don't think he does those at all on the um, on the previous album. Whereas this one, say both like Burning Fe uh, Phoenix and Succubus Priestess, they're like, you know, probably like the chorus hook is his his really sort of melodic voice. Um, and yeah, he, he's, he's like a great part of Septic Flesh's sound from now on. Like, you always look forward to the tracks on a Septic Flesh album where uh, Satoris drops like a really cool chorus. And yeah, that that's starting on, on this album. Um, the, the thing that's very odd with this, where I feel it really gets its sort of progressive experimental nature is tracks like Celebration, this sort of like minute interlude of very sort of neoclassical, like medieval sort of, uh, uh like faux medieval sounding stuff. Um, it's, yeah, can you be neoclassical and faux medieval? That's probably a, a complete misnomer. But it, yeah, it's, it's very over the top, very campy, and there's lots of little moments where they do stuff like this which is really detracting from i'd say them having the label of doom anymore despite the sort of slow pace of the album i'd say this this almost more moves into a realm of like experimental or progressive i guess i, I would term it rather than necessarily doom same problem as the album before but it's kind of more glaring on uh spoketron um Oh God, I just cannot say that album title, I'm sorry. Uh, the final track, Narcissism, uh, is just more of the the sort of classical stuff, which is fine, but it's it, very much with the previous one as well. It feels like it's um, just sort of tacked on, almost like a different band sort of playing it. And yeah, again, I find myself normally skipping the song, and this album's got a much shorter runtime. It's only about half an hour without that. So, it yeah, it feels a little more all over the place. Also, uh, talking of liking the covers, apparently uh, Spiros is also responsible for the cover of this album, which is a very, a very cool uh, a picture. Very like rough, but um, yeah, I don't know. I find it um, quite engaging. Yeah, so it's you can kind of see where things are starting to change with the band. What struck me as really interesting, actually, in the research is I didn't realise Crystals wasn't involved. And Crystals is, like, well-known with Septic Flesh for being the guy who writes the orchestral parts. Like, he, in the late 90s, he lived in London and was studying classical music um, at, like, sort of degree level. I think he has sort of a master's in, like, classical composition. And he's the guy who writes all the actual orchestral pieces from communion onwards. 
So him not being involved in the album where they really lean into that sort of classical epic edge is interesting and maybe somewhat speaks to why the three of them have been able to work together for so long in a band that, you know, didn't really get successful till, you know, 2010. Well, it started all the way back in, like, 1990. I wouldn't I wouldn't really say they were, like, a household name in death metal till at least when Communion came out. So yeah, like um, uh, then maybe that that sort of speaks to that nature of it, where they all are on the same page of like evolving in the same direction. With the third album, Crystals rejoins the band. This came out in nineteen ninety seven, uh, the Ophidian Wheel, and I think this is another like if you've not um, gone back to earlier Septic Flesh stuff, this is one well worth revisiting. I, I think the band kind of bring things together a bit more the the previous album really interesting but very all over the place this they i think step further away from the death metal and start including more and more of those kind of clean influences even bringing in a guest operatic vocalist in the form of uh natalie russell lewis who um also performed with chaos star which is like christos's um sort of far more goth inspired solo project and she did um she sung on a fair few um septic flesh albums from this one onwards and she's just yeah, ridiculous like over the top soprano vocalist i assume crystals met uh, in in london she's based as uh sort of born in the uk according to metal archive so yeah I, and, and being in chaos star as well i assume that's kind of where that sort of connection came in but say on tracks like uh phallic litanies she adds this amazing bombastic ludicrously high kind of chorus hook and then you have moments like there's been a running thing actually of like the title tracks being really good on these these first couple ophidian wheel the second track really um epitomizes what i was talking about um of these great sort of lead guitar lines leading a, a song being the, the real hook of this amazing lead bit but again this one things are slow like we do have an actual drummer credited though so the whole album feels a bit more sort of live and real like the production of the previous album is very strange like not bad but just weird this feels far more traditionally like a death doom album released in 1997 it's you know it's got all the elements you'd expect of that sound and just feeling that a bit more kind of full um really adds a lot to it and this this is an album i think i possibly overlooked in the past for some reason i'm not quite sure why because revisiting a lot in the listening for this i've really enjoyed it the only thing is so the band learned the lesson of don't do like a nine minute departure from your sound to end the album but instead this this one ends in like kind of the opposite of like a a 50 second instrumental at the end which just really makes the album just feel like it suddenly stops like it's um with this kind of music it's so sort of bombastic you know classical inspired you I, I kind of expect a big closer to it and like say a lot of more recent septic flesh albums close on real high notes like the end of a septic flesh album in my mind is always like a, the really good bit not true of this one this sort of just stops and it's it's a shame for something like this i kind of wanted to build to more but again like minor criticism that's like they just front load this with all the good tracks. Like the first three are probably probably the best on it. Another cover I really like, which it's kind of sad they sort of 
have kind of almost erased these and the, and even the old logo from history. It's a very strange image, but really striking. Well worth looking up the original if you've um, never seen it before. The fourth album very much continues in this vein, particularly moments like Marble Shining's face, uh, Marble Shining, Marble Smiling Face, really kind of typifies, I say that that sort of very memorable, sort of catchy death doom metal with like a little bit of a, a classical influence in there. We say we're still getting plenty of keyboards layered into the sound, but things are still heavy for the most part, with only occasional moments sort of. Uh, departing from that like the um the sort of single from the album the eldest cosmonaut is entirely clean vocals it's sort of a mainly a trade-off between um sort of uh satoris's cleans and uh natalie returns to this doing a very extreme sort of performance like some of our highs are incredibly intense on that track we also have a um another guest clean singer join for two kind of weird moments on the album there's a underworld act one and two sort of split between the tracks which are these very operatic in the sort of traditional sense of seem like they are out of an opera they're these these kind of classical pieces where the vocalists like playing multiple characters within them where there's like sort of a a story running through them and i i, I think the, the i think it's mainly the two guest singers voicing them and they they have nothing to do with death metal and kind of feel like these weird moments in the album like they're both quite good but they are a jarring thing to deal with it's that sort of real turn in terms of genre like eldest cosmonaut fits naturally in this album it still feels like a dark heavy extreme metal song despite its lack of screams these I'd struggle to say were would even necessarily metal. And possibly it's just that thing maybe it's just way too highbrow for me. Um but yeah, it's it's sort of interesting to hear them. It's also um a song Erebus. I think it might just be No, there's actually a couple. That's interesting. I think it's only just occurred to me that um their earliest EP, uh we The Temple of the Lost Race, we get a load of tracks off that um appear on this. So Erebus is the the second to last song we have Temple of the Lost Race on here. I'll have to check. How many do they repeat from that? So three tracks actually off that debut four-track EP um, are re-recorded for this, which will explain why Septic Flesh have never re-released that EP. Like, I, I hadn't noticed it myself because I, I kind of didn't really know that EP existed. I bought the, the sort of demo collection and the other albums, and I, I, I've only listened to that EP the once. Well, then you can probably skip over that if you're ever going back for the discography, because they recorded it all here. They're good tracks. Um, I wouldn't say they're the highlights of the album, though. I think, for me, that would definitely be Marvel's Smiling Face, um, The Eldest Cosmonaut, Brotherhood of the Fallen Knights, like the first three of sort of the bits I really like, and then sort of the next part of the album more or less covers the ground of uh, that debut EP split up by these two these two classical pieces uh, yeah so it's kind of an interesting period for the band like there's there's definitely unfulfilled sort of things going on here like a lot of ideas clashing together um there's a kind of nothing ep that comes out the following year not really worth talking about but um oh sorry just before this sorry the eldest cosmonaut oh that was pretty just like a tie-in ep i wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't think about it too much. But like, um, so following this, they they completely turn. They they do something 
totally different on the the next album, Revolution DNA, their fifth album. Uh, just it's it's a goth rock, goth metal album. Um, so Spiros still gets a few like does get his harsh vocals in there, but uh, Satoris really leads this one on the cleans. There's loads of big catchy choruses. Um, it's an album until recently I used to really not like this. I think if you listen to the old episode talking about Septic Flesh, I I wrote this off as terrible, and I don't think that's fair in hindsight. I sort of revisited it um, a couple of times in research for this episode, and actually it's kind of great, but you just have to go into it expecting it not to be your standard Septic Flesh release. In fact, the points on this album where it's at its absolute worst are where it does still flirt with death metal, like that kind of coupled with, as I say, that very goth-influenced sort of big chorus hook kind of thing they're doing on this doesn't really gel with that. Also, those sort of really memorable leads are less present on this. They, they have their moments, but that way, I wouldn't say that's sort of the the primary thing. And we now have like a, a full-time drummer as well in the lineup who... Um, went on to be in Chaos Star. Um, it, it did also play on Sumerian Demons, though, but Chaos Star seems more like the place for this. Like, this album really feels like the the proto-Chaos uh, proto Star, like um, like this the start-up for that more goth-influenced project. And that sort of brings us, like, up to the point I got to before. So the band would put out Sumerian Demons in 2003, which is their final album without an orchestra. And, like, a, kind of a change, like, possibly sort of more in line with Mystic Places of Dawn than it is anything else. It's like a far more death metal album than um, a, particularly something like Fallen Temple or The Ophidian Wheel. And it's kind of, yeah, like, Mystic Places of the Dawn, but with, you know, 10 years of evolution of how sort of recordings work and sound added on um yeah it's 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 a cool release but i've spoken about it before so i won't labor on that and then that's where the band they took a brief hiatus for four years after that and came back with communion and then more or less are the septic flesh we know today like they i'd say everything they've done from that point on the the four albums we've got i'm going to assume modern primitive the one coming out soon very much in that same vein of that epic orchestral death metal but they were they were certainly onto something original with that. But don't overlook their earlier releases. I think everything they've put out um, is of a certain level of quality. Like certainly worth your time. It probably won't all be for you, as I say. Like Revolution DNA did nothing for me for the longest time. But yeah, as revisiting, I, I think there's actually something quite special there. These guys, these guys really put out an impressive amount of music in a short span of time. So those first five albums. Um, span from 1994 through to 99 so space of five years they put out five albums that go through quite a few genres you know near enough five hours of music it's um very impressive work rate
band to go on to next is Transcending Bizarre, who um, have to be pronounced like that because for some reason it's got a question mark at the end of it, I assume, so they didn't sound um, completely <laughs> self-aggrandizing. These guys are probably most famous for having three guys who went on to form Hail Spirit Noir in the band, so the two guitarists and keyboard players um, all sort of went on to form that band who, who plays kind of very avant-garde, out there, progressive black metal. And Transcending Bizarre... Uh, also play really out there, bizarre, avant-garde black metal, but really differently. So, um, yeah, there's a slight sort of change in the lineup, different drummer, uh, different vocalist uh, with this band. And particularly, I'm going to be covering their second album, The Serpent's Manifolds. So, all the way back in 2003, uh, the, the band had been around since 2000, but like lineup solidified for 2003's uh, The Four Scissors, which is a very odd sort of heavily sort of industrial influenced um symphonic black metal album it's interesting but compared to the two that followed it it's one i don't really find myself revisiting greatly but there's a bit of a gap and then in 2008 we get the serpent's manifolds and i've spoken about the third and final album the missing Thropes fable ages ago on the podcast but it's um one i was always very fond of for uh, taking a very um, sort of cheesy, like, over-the-top approach to symphonic black metal, but having enough sort of interesting sort of proggy elements in there to not make that kind of overwhelming. There's something, like, I don't know, they, they have a lot of really good hooks with Transcending Bizarre, so it doesn't just come across as completely ridiculous, although the Choir of Children on that album will be, I think, uh, the kind of Marmite thing for a lot of people, like, you're either going to enjoy that sound or... Uh, absolutely hate it every time it appears that's not present present on the serpents manifold um with this album the band seems significantly more aggressive than they do on the next release i think it's very sort of notable and immediately is that really overbearing sort of keyboards like think like those sort of um early emperor mixes or something like uh old man's child that thing where you've got the really heavy present drumming You've got the really huge sort of keyboards and vocals providing a lot of the leads. And then the guitars and bass are all kind of more of a rhythmic sort of soup sort of mixed into that. And the guitars are only really noticeable when they, they jump out to do something something more sort of memorable or like, yeah, more more indulgent. And this, this album has a lot of very indulgent guitar work. Like if you've listened to Hail Spirit Noir, you know these two are a masterful guitarist and this album i think of all the stuff like that i've heard has them like showing off the most there's a lot of very fancy bits of uh, lead work in there the drumming on the album is really cool it's like incredibly fast and over the top and even in, like the most melodic passages there's incredible fast double kicks throughout although so i pretty like i could be wrong on this but i think it's all programmed so a guy called uh, sa akis who 
tragically passed away really shortly um, before the release of their final album, The Missing Throat's Fable, is credited with um, doing the drum programming and the sample work throughout um, all the Transcending Bizarre albums. But yeah, he did a really good job with this. Like, if you listen closely, you can kind of tell the drums are programmed, but on an album that's sort of over the top, I feel with that really epic, like, symphonic black metal, you can get away with that in the sound because there's enough other interesting layers to distract from the fact the drums don't sound as cool as they could. Other noticeable thing about this, like, and it, I think this is very interesting for a release from 2008, a lot of guest um, additional musicians. So we've got extra vocalists for a couple of tracks lending some sort of cleans, but very sort of backing for the most part. Two guest violin players and a guest flute player to sort of buff out that kind of classical um, keyboard section this has. Something I've always really liked about Transcending Bizarre is um, vocalist Kotaz. Uh, um, his his delivery is really, really noticeable. It's this very kind of nasty sounding, like, it, it's classic black metal where it's really sort of enunciated, but just sounds like it's coming from a horrible place in his throat. Like, there's something somewhat gross about the noise, and he's very, very full on in your face for all that. Uh, their releases he fits so well with the the overall bombast of their albums and yeah like there, there is moments on this like, i don't know why i think like, in my mind i sort of connect it with septic flesh for that kind of related energy they, they they both have that feel of being like epic in an operatic way even though with this we, we don't even really have a lot of operatic vocals but it's it's that sort of bombast in the performance that that sort of really makes it the album, like, is about, like, I think it's the best part of an hour, but, like, they, they keep you very engaged throughout and close on um, an epic sort of three-part track that has this sort of huge sort of build to, like, a, a final sort of very kind of indulgent over-the-top moment where the, the guitarist all gets to sort of really show off and some of, like, the kind of more memorable very cheesy sort of keyboard passages come in but yeah like if you've if you you're into hail spirit noir i i would advise going back and checking out transcending bizarre i think they 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 really tap into something great although they are just such a different band possibly this is one actually more to uh to visit if you're not already into sort of what they sort of evolved into like maybe maybe this is more one to come out if you have time for that sort of symphonic black metal i think particularly if you're sort of into that general like dimmy Borger, cradle of filth kind of sound like there's a lot here to get uh to get into although this is certainly less less dark than either of those bands particularly their early work this is it's nominally black metal like uh, there's definitely an influence there but i think it's sort of really gone out into the realms of the avant-garde more so than that but just with a level of kind of um the, the kind of the atmosphere it creates it's not a it's not a negative album in any way which for music kind of this extreme you know with screen vocals like really sort of heavy drumming is is an interesting thing to do i i think it's the fine line they walk but i do have a lot of time for the uh the more cheesy end of things but yeah Transcending Bazaar certainly creating a sound unique to them. They're they're bad you could recognise a mile off. Like they're particularly with the vocals, the way the keyboards are sort of layered, like 
I, I think they're a very obvious and unique sound. I want to cover something a bit more contemporary. This is Live Burial with their 2020 album Underending Futility. So we covered Live Bur- Burial ages back when we had my friend Jake on the podcast. He brought them in, and they're really brilliant. Um, UK uh, based in Newcastle death metal act. Um, they're signed to Transcending Obscurity Records, and they play in that vein of. I, I don't think it's unfair to say it's sort of OSDM that, like, Transcending Obscurity seem to put out a lot of these days. And I realised with this album, I just really sort of lost it in the shuffle. I think I I bought it back when it came out in 2020. But, um, you know, when you get these things that just sit in your music library untouched, where you're like, oh, I know what that's going to be like. And and I was completely wrong. Like, it, it really sort of blew me away. It is in certainly in that vein of, like, that sort of worship of a classic era of death metal but they bring enough flair and kind of fury to this that um it really kind of transcends that i've got to stop using the word transcend between transcending bizarre and transcending obscurity but these like back to live burial they really do something this second album and ending futility that elevates them above a lot of their kind of modern peers i I don't know quite why, but there is so much that is just right about this album. The the tone is utterly fantastic. This really harsh sort of buzzsaw attack. The vocalist Jamie Brown is really harsh in your face. He's got like kind of a, more of a mid-level sort of scratchy scream, but he has a sort of real intensity and presence to him. Really embarrassingly, I've somehow never managed to see these guys live, despite them being a death metal band that are from the UK. Like, I really play a lot. Like, I really should have, like, I would love to know how good they are at this kind of sound live. But yeah, he seems like a guy who really projects a hell of a lot. And it 
kind of gives the whole sound like a real edge to it um i think we must have mentioned this as a previous review but with this this album bass player lee anderson really sort of like steals the show in a subtle way he does that kind of thing in this is so it's a five-piece band We've got two guitarists separate vocalists all that there's a lot vying for your attention in these fast brutal songs but he finds a way to always inject these interesting bass lines like every other riff will have a bit where the bass seems to be doing something far removed from the guitars and it just adds something it adds that extra little hook that extra touch of melody or groove that wouldn't be present if the bass was just following the guitars and i think there's so many moments where the bass does something cool and it just sort of elevates everything that that touch the guitar and drum work is is all perfect it's exactly what you'd you want for this this kind of style but yeah there's just a few things they do things like a little different and it just really really adds a a yeah a kind of cool edge the the songs for the most part are are kind of sort of standard fare for the genre but i they have a good um sense of like pacing there's there's a lot of speed up and slows down like particularly towards the the final track cemetery fog the sort of almost 10 minute epic at the end gets quite slow and doomy for the first half before really sort of kicking off into like the blasting and having a kind of um sort of minute-long instrumental ahead of it definitely sets up the album for its big kind of epic close i'd say like cemetery fog is the real standout track from that from the album and to uh sort of really like bring that home we have a guest vocalist in the form of uh kari can Kanapa? oh i can't do finish names i'm sorry he's the vocalist of uh sepulchral curse and solifer so excellent vocalist comes in for a, a guest performance on this to like i don't know add some more legitimacy to it and just you know just a little more vocal texture just really elevates this it's one of these albums where i think it's that sort of triumph of of tone and writing in a well-honed formula um in some ways it puts me in mind of like say the, the latest rip to threads album where i can't quite tell you why it feels so much better than a lot of their contemporaries but it's just they just something is just right about it that really sort of um really hits home with it listening to it like the vocals to me like really embody that kind of swedish metal sound about like as I say, that slightly sort of higher rasp with lots of howls that sort of go off into the distance, like last for a really long time. The lead work on this album's really great. There's a lot of really memorable solos, including including like a bass one at some point. Like, yeah, the the writing is really solid on that front. And with its sort of relatively short, like sort of 40-minute runtime, certainly doesn't outstay its welcome. This this feels like a band who really edited their material down to the best pile of riffs and songs. Yeah, just really fantastic stuff. Um, if you are someone who has time for that OSDM sound, I, I think Live Burial are really doing a very good job of addressing that with, you know, all the benefits of uh, modern day recording.
another album that's well worth mentioning if you enjoyed that live burial album is Deep Profundis, also from the UK, with their 2018 album, The Blinding Light of Faith. So another Transcending Obscurity Records band, and another one I've, like, sort of had that thing with this band where they put out a lot of material and I've not followed it closely enough. So I really like their second album, uh, Oblique Reflection, back when that sort of came out all the way back in 2010, where they did this sort of, like, it was a very progressive sort of death doomy sound so really long songs sort of lots of like 10 minute sort of plus tracks but with this very proggy edge to them so it was doom in the sense the vocalists would do long very drawn out song like screams like very much talking about you know feelings and being depressed that kind of classic stuff um for the genre but then the musicianship in places would get very fancy. The, their bass player, um, I think he's now left the band, but he's, for both these albums he's there, Aaron McSporan, um, he's this incredible, fretless bass player, like really, really impressive musician. And he adds like a huge amount of interesting, like weird quotes and stuff. And the the two guitarists would like absolutely shred in these long, like um, involved solo passages in, in the song. So... I kind of, for whatever reason, didn't follow them for a while. Now, coming back to Blinding Light of Faith, which, again, is something I sort of picked up well well past of that. I've only really got into it recently. Um, I found the band have massively sort of changed their approach. Like, this album is almost half an hour shorter than Oblique Reflection, and the band have gone for these far more concise, like, five-minute songs where things are much more furious and aggressive. Um, there's been some minor sort of lineup change like one of the guitarists has, has left um there's a new guy sort of coming to replace him and i believe this is their first album with um new drummer tom atherton so i don't know whether that's sort of led to some of this change of style or if that is more of a natural evolution but um yeah there's something about this is, is so much more immediate because because they don't take 70 minutes sort of um going around things like the the these songs are just that much <laughs> yeah, that much more sort of punishing and aggressive, but like they still keep all a lot of those proggy touches. Like when it, we come to sort of the the lead sections, they're absolutely wild. Like these guitarists are are really really masterful progressive metal musicians. That aforementioned bass playing is still absolutely brilliant on this like they're really like the guy really kind of just throws in some amazing moments and if you like that kind of fretless bass sound you think of like steve DiGiorgio on any of those death albums like it's that kind of approach of adding in some sort of prog wildness over some more traditional riffing um yeah like brilliant stuff like that i love how much the vocalist has changed his approach craig land as i say like um on a bleak reflection he's got these really long drawn out screams and really sort of um clear enunciation like you very much get the the sort of lyrics for each song because because they have so much time to breathe in there he's far more faster in your face in this album very brutal but in quite a different way like i, I really like that sort of evolution of um his ability and yeah like and everything's sort of changed about the aesthetic the lyrical content to sort of fit this kind of shift in genre i really like the cover as well to sound it's um very sort of stylistic image but yeah just sort of, it just looks really decent he's the artist for that um 
Alexander Tarsus. Oh, I'm not not aware of this guy, but yeah, like um, really really cool kind of aesthetic, <laughs> really similar color palette to the uh, to the um, uh, live burial one as well, actually. Uh, but yeah, like. Oh, yeah, this guy's got a massive career. He's done loads of cool stuff. Um, okay, cool. I'm just an idiot for not knowing the name. Um, yeah, so, yeah, if if you if anything that sounded appealing about Live Burial, I, I think a lot of that could apply to Deep Proof Undies. It's, it's a little more indulgent, proggy, etc. But, like, it's still a death metal record at its core. It's, I, I wouldn't put this in the progressive camp i would just say the band sort of have moments of getting very technical in there but it's it it's almost always in service of the song and actually far more so than sort of their early material it doesn't have that tendency towards self-indulgence just because they are being so strict in the timing like putting out a 40 minute album of eight tracks these are far more condensed to the point things. <laughs> keep this episode a little short just because i'm still fairly sort of low energy at the moment but yeah cover one more album i've been sort of really enjoying although this is one i think i've been quite fond of for a little while now this is the howling void with their fifth album the triumph of ruin so um this is one i got really into ages back when i got into the sort of the catalog of avant-garde music and this was one that really stood out to me is doing something very interesting within that sort of like general sound. So it's a solo project of multi-instrumentalist and seemingly one of the busiest men in, uh, in metal, uh, Ryan Wilson. Um, and Howling Void is... I don't know quite where to place them. It's sort of um, 
epic doom metal, but with almost this sort of semi-black metal aesthetic. There's such a kind of um, sort of nature-type themes to all the album covers and that that kind of makes me think of, of black metal. Like, there's a little bit of um, sort of later primordial to it, maybe, in a way, but without the, the vocal bombast. What I really like about Triumph and Ruin is how much, like, atmosphere and majesty it crafts with, with just these guitar riffs and often very simplistic sort of rhythm section, like the drumming and bass playing is really just holding it down. It's just these sort of epic swells of guitar, and I believe there's some sort of occasional keyboards in there. Um, they, he makes this wonderfully majestic doom sound. It's so sort of kind of awe-inspiring and um yeah just really overwhelming in a lot of ways and and the album eschews like then possibly helps most of the mistakes like a lot of doom makes it's a very very short release under 40 minutes like most of the tracks are only about five minutes long and they don't repeat themselves hugely uh but yeah they and the whole thing has this brilliant flow like it's the, that kind of album you'd never listen to skipping a track or just play a track off it by itself. It's got to be heard in full. It's sort of, I don't know, it progresses in a certain way that just each track naturally flows from one one to the next. For a sort of one-man recording, and I, I believe he sort of um, does, yeah, he's, he's sort of credited on Metal Archives at least as recording, mixing, mastering. Um, yeah, like... It doesn't sound like a one-man project. It, it does sound very full and huge. The album cover being this very sort of simplistic image of sort of a, a green hillscape covered in fog just just fits perfectly. It, it is is exactly the aesthetic that fits the kind of the beauty of this. Something that really actually sort of struck me, um, like actually every time I listen to it, it always um, leaps out of. Possibly the highlight sort of moment of this is the third track, The Nine Worlds Wept, where it's entirely instrumental and, and actually features like one like little bluesy lead passage, which is just like the perfect drop of just a really nicely, like, you know, that, that blues bend of a note. Just dropped at exactly the right moment to, to hit maximum emotional uh, impact. It's incredible. But it's amazing that in a record like this, that the standout thing would be this um, something as simple as, like, a, a, you know, an instrumental track, something where there isn't a big vocal hook. But actually, his vocals are a very background effect in this. Like, Ryan's cleans are really nice, but they're very very subtle somber and sort of low in the mix and they like they, they don't have like a sort of um huge presence like a reference about like primordial they, they're not sat like front and center like that like this is very uh hidden like hidden away almost just another texture like i had to think i've heard this album like you know, 20 odd times at least but i had to think for a moment like whether there were screams in there as well because the vocal performance just isn't what you're thinking about when when listening to this and it's it's really interesting so what was amazing to discover sort of getting really into this band was um what else sort of ryan was involved in because i, I kind of came to his band just by virtue of liking the album cover and got really into this album but actually he's in a load of like really brutal projects so much more 
sort of aggressive. Like, um, I think probably the most famous is Intestinal Discord, are kind of like renowned for being a very over the top sort of gross kind of death grind, gore grind kind of thing. I, that, I'm not a band I'm particularly familiar with. Um, one I I come to really love in recent months of his is uh, Numa Hegion or Hegion. Um. I think is is that Greek for Breath of God, something like that. Sorry, I don't know fully how to pronounce that. But that but his album Void Gaze, I think I basically picked up all the stuff and the demos and the EPs as well. All brilliant. But Void Gaze is this amazing, um, absolute assault on the senses. Like another short, like very to the point album, like one and a half an hour of these three minute absolute punishing attacks on the senses. Like this. this completely overwhelming sort of like loosely i'd say like brutal death metal but there's you know that nature of when something's like brutal death metal but it's so atmospheric um that it feels like there's some kind of pull from black metal in there as well like yeah it's it's certainly um it's certainly got that. Like the, the album has an incredible atmosphere to it. So Ron and this one's joined by drummer Shane Elwell, um, and like and like someone else is is mixing and mastering it. So this is less a one man project, but he's still responsible for all the other instruments and the vocals. And it's just such an incredible counterpoint. Another really beautifully appropriate cover. This um like slightly sort of simplistic painting of like, I believe it's like a figure sort of bleeding out or like sort of vomiting out into this red circle in the second half of the lower half of the image yeah it's really really striking cover and yeah they're an amazing band but it, it's just such a kind of contrast to what he's doing in um the howling void and now i've not listened to everything from howling void but their um their output varies quite a lot i believe there's some stuff that like sort of Oh, I could be off on this. I think some of their albums almost approach like the kind of drone uh, world of things. But yeah, I've, I've only got um, the few I, I picked up when I, when I bought the avant-garde music discography. And the ones I've heard more or less um, do sit in the same vein as Triumph of Ruin. Of that kind of very atmospheric, very epic, like emotional doom with that. As I say, that's something, something weirdly evocative in nature. I don't know whether that's just the the cover doing that for me, but yeah, this thing about it, maybe maybe the the slightest like hint of a folk influence, but not in a way that in any way detracts from it still sounding very grim. I won't go on much more about this one because I feel Brian has this this near infinite discography to explore, and I I really haven't scratched the surface in my, my listening it's just those those two albums that i i think are um absolutely excellent also with that howling void one if any of you can think of a band that it really sounds like my friend matt um i played it to recently he's not sort of the the biggest fan of a lot of uh sort of more modern metal absolutely loved it and was asking for sort of more recommendations in that vein and i didn't have one that sort of immediately sprung to mind so if you've got more music like that, please um, please send a link over. If you want to get in touch, you can uh, hit me up um, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, um, search that on Instagram as well, or uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com if you want to get in touch via via email. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear if you've, you've got some recommendations in that kind of vein. Um, otherwise, yeah, as I say, my voice is getting rather tired now, so uh, I'll call it there. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Thank you.
Thank you.